everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. I was actually taught that the Nuremberg laws that Hitler enacted were because we didn't separate ourselves enough, so God brought a Hitler to separate us. And so the first of the Nuremberg laws are all actual laws in the Torah, meaning you can't drink wine with a non-Jew. That's a law in the Torah. If you would touch a wine bottle to an extremely Orthodox Jew from my community, the wine's not kosher. I believe in God. I have so much gratitude and faith in him. I don't believe that he cares whether my collarbone is uncovered. I don't think that he cares whether I'm a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. I think God is bigger than those differences and that he cares about all humanity equally. And, you know, and it it is not about, you know, how long your skirt is. It's just not. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I am super pumped to have you on the show. You know, I had a a really interesting experience the other night. I live in Florence, Italy. And one of uh, the gals that we had dinner with uh, the other night, a friend of my wife's, is Jewish. And we had a, a great conversation about Judaism. And the next day, I had a Hasidic Jew walk over to me in the coffee shop and just introduce himself. And I was like, this is the strangest thing in the world. Cause in Italy, there's not a lot of that. Yeah. And we sat down for two hours and your name came up. And of course, <laughs> of course so I want you, I, the reason why I'm bringing that up is I want you to know how far reaching Wow. What you're doing is it's like a strange little cafe. I don't know why he came up to me to this day. I have no idea, but he did. So coupled with the, uh, the conversation with him and my friends and a few questions I had, I'm going to try and roll it all in. And we're going to talk about your book. Cool. Amazing. Sounds all incredible. Right. All right. So as a kid, me growing up in New York and watching ultra-Orthodox Jews and being very confused, but really too afraid to ask. I remember I was walking down the Diamond. I grew up in Queens. I was walking down um, the Diamond District when I was in Manhattan one day. And my, my daughter at the time, she said to me, Daddy, look, a magician, because she saw like the hat and the, the whole thing. And 
you know, so I was like, she was like, is that, a I'm like, no, it's not a magician. She's like, a magician. what, what are they doing? So I have a bunch of questions around it. So I think a good place to start um, would be to take you back to kind of growing up a bit in Austin, Texas, after arriving from Russia. Do you remember what that Austin culture shock was like for you? So it's interesting because Austin should have been a culture shock, right? But it actually wasn't. You know, it was, I remember feeling welcome and at home the second I got there because, you know, I we walk out of the airplane and there's this cheerful, jovial, you know, woman from the Jewish community of Austin standing there waiting for us. I remember she had a jar of piggy bank and told me, in this country, we save our money. And I remember that because I was five years old and it made such an impression on me. I kept that piggy bank, I think, for like 10 years. So, you know, I just felt immediately at home. I loved I loved living a normal modern day existence. It was amazing. Did you have a language issue or no? Well, of course. I mean, I barely spoke English. I mean, my parents had taught me when we were in the two internment camps in Rome and in Vienna, they were practicing English with me, but of course still, but you know, five-year-olds, they pick up a language in four minutes. I know I have a seven-year-old daughter and we moved to uh, Italy nine months ago. And um, are you in Italy now? I'm in Italy right now. Yeah. I'm in Florence. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting because she's starting to she's starting to speak Italian and it's a very strange as a parent, I'm 56, but it's very strange to see your kid, you know, do it, doing this with her hands. You know, it's such a, it's such a strange thing. All right. So I want to talk about moving, uh, from Texas to Muncie, New York. Um, and maybe you can talk about what that was like and describe for people that don't know what Muncie is. How would you, I know what Muncie is. How would you describe Muncie? So, you know, that was a big culture shock. Coming from Austin, Texas, where everything was new and clean and colorful and beautiful, you drive into the environs of Muncie, it's gray, it's dirty. There's garbage on the streets there. It's just, it looked so dark. Interesting. That's how very that was a traumatic experience and going to school in Muncie because you know I started off in a more modern orthodox school um, before my parents switched me over the following year to the full-on the way we became later but my first foray into that world was this modern orthodox school but I felt more out of place there and I had felt as the only Jew in my private school in Austin Texas I felt more comfortable there than I did in Muncie. And to explain what Muncie is, Muncie is an, it's a ghetto. It's a shtetl from the 1800s. They live the way that people lived 200 years ago. So, you know, women's purpose in life, what they're educated to do is to be mothers and obedient wives. They're taught that their biology defines their destiny. And because they're a woman, God expects them to be meek, mild, submissive, silent, um, and make her, you know, the more you can 
disappear yourself, the greater of a woman you are. That's Muncie. You know, I remember in the book you talked about, and we'll get into this in a bit, but you said something that just triggered it. Um, I remember you talking about singing and how one of the girls sang a bit louder and she was not able to disappear in the way that you're describing. And that is not a good thing. In, uh, ah, in it's, bad, bad, bad. it's a bad thing. So we're, we're going to get into that. Did you know when you were in Muncie that you were, did you have a, a sense that you were cut off from the rest of the world? Oh, a hundred percent. You did. You knew it. Oh, oh, absolutely. It's very purposeful and intentional. I tell you these outside influences are deadly to your soul separate yourself. It's all about separation. Don't forget, I was actually taught that the Nuremberg laws that Hitler enacted were because we didn't separate ourselves enough. So God brought a Hitler to separate us. And so the first of the Nuremberg laws are all actual laws in the Torah, meaning you can't drink wine with a non-Jew. That's a law in the Torah. If you would touch a wine bottle to a extremely orthodox Jew for my community, the wine's not kosher. You touch it, becomes not kosher. So all of these laws are made to keep Jewish people away, separated from the rest of the world. That's the point of these laws because extremism can only exist in a bubble, in isolation. If you meet people who aren't like you, who don't follow your religion and they're lovely humans, you're not going to buy into the whole, we're the only ones with the right way. Everyone else is out to kill us. So the more you isolate people, the more they believe that what you're being taught is true. I didn't know any other point of view. That's the only point of view I ever heard. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. You know, when we're looking at what's going on in the Ukraine, in, in Ukraine right now, and we're seeing, you know, sort of the bullshit that the Russians are telling their people. Yeah. That's the world that you came from. And your parents also came from that world. Do you think it was easier for them to slip into this ideology because they can't not, you know, not that growing up in Russia is Hasidic Jewish, Jewish but there's this sort of like, narrative that people hundred percent i mean to me they just switched isms switched isms thank you that's what i was trying to say perfect they switched isms meaning they were when they were younger they were devout communists and by the time they were in their early 20s communism had completely disappointed them there was so much anti-semitism they were unique in the fact that they were allowed to travel around um Russia, because, you know, the Communist Party thought they were so good looking and so charismatic that they could bring people back into the communist fold. But what ends up happening is they become completely disillusioned, see what a, you know, a mess the country's in and realize that communism, that ism is broken, doesn't work. And so, but these are two people who were brought up to believe that you have to be a martyr and suffer for an ism. 
that you need to live for something greater than yourself. And it has to hurt, right? It's got to have seriousness and gravitas. It's got to be difficult. So my mother chose, replaced communism with the kind of Judaism that is the most difficult for someone like her because this woman had two PhDs, one in mathematics and one in philosophy. She's one of the most brilliant women I know. And she put us in a world where women aren't allowed to be brilliant, where they're not supposed to get PhDs, where they're not supposed to be intellectually equal to men. So she chose her ism as the one that would be the most difficult for her as a human being to fit into. So in a way, she was comfortable with that stripe, that striving, that difficult, you know, for her having 600 and what is it? 631 laws or something? 113. 600, I, I inverted it. 613. That's a lot of fucking laws. And by the way, there's, in those laws, there's 9,000 tangents and then 22, you know, chumras, um, stringencies that people add themselves. You wish it was 613 laws. It's more like 6,800 laws because, I mean, there's a law which shoot a tie on first. There's a law what foot to put out on your bed when you get out of bed. There's a law about literally everything. And, you know, you grow up in a world that's so regimented, but think about it. Um, I was in Brighton Beach 20 years ago, uh, visiting a religious Russian guy, and he was bemoaning how much he misses Russia. And now my parents hated Russia. All I heard from them is what a horrible country it is and blah, 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 blah. So to hear this guy praise it, I was really surprised. And I asked him, what he missed. And he told me he missed having someone make all his decisions for him. Mm. He said, with communism, I never had a doubt as to what to do because I never had a choice. And I thought about that for a long time. It's true. Communism takes away your choices. And guess what? Prisoners prisoners will repeat crime to get back into structure. So that's the thing she had. She left an ism that was so structured and so made a an individual is was not in any way, shape or form important. It was always the collective. Right. So she grew up in a world that was very structured where you didn't get to make decisions and your freedom was curtailed. And she picked the form of Judaism. That's exactly the same where you don't have to make decisions. It's all decided for you. If it's not in the Bible, ask your neighborhood rabbi. You don't have to decide what's good or bad. You don't have to decide what to do. Someone's going to do it for you. And that's right. very convenient for a lot of people. Speaking of not making decisions, at 19, a man named Yosef Handler enters your life. Matchmaker, yes. matchmaker, uh, make me a match, right? So at 19 years old, I mean, I have a 24-year-old. I, like, I don't even know if she makes her bed right now. You know, like the thought of like 19 being... Like it's, it's, it's insanity. Um, you know nothing about yourself at 19. You know nothing about the world. You're not a fully formed human. It is madness to make people marry as teenagers. It's crazy. And so, okay. So now Yosef enters your life uh, for people just, just to give context here for people that don't understand the different sort of offshoots of Judaism. Could you describe the difference between 
Hasidic. I'll give you a couple of terms. I don't even know if I'm using them right. I'm not Jewish. Um, Hasidic, Orthodox. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, um, I, I do my research and I grew up in New York. Very impressed. <laughs> um, Hasidic, Orthodox, and ultra-Orthodox. What is the difference between those? Okay, so first, the difference between Hasidus, Hasidim, and where I came from, which is black hat or yeshivish, right? Instead of the felt, instead of the fur hat, it's a felt hat. And instead of the payas being really long, they get tucked behind the ears. So there's like these little nuances. Um, in my world, women wear wigs. A Hasidic woman would wear a wig and a hat on top of her wig. But the hair is covered in both cases. Now, the actual theoretical difference is that the yeshivish world, the extremely orthodox, ultra-orthodox community, what I call black hat or yeshivish, it's focused on the yeshiva. That's why it's called yeshivish. And yeshiva means the school, the learning, the place of learning where men study until the day they die and, you know, spend hours a day studying the talk, right? Which women are not allowed to do. So the whole center of the yeshivish black hat world is the place of study. For Hasidim, it's the synagogue. It's all about feeling connected to God. You know, yeshivish is very intellectual connection. Hasidus, Hasidus came around in the 1800s because Jews were leaving Judaism by the thousands um, in, in Eastern Europe. And most of them were illiterate. And so they couldn't go to yeshiva. They couldn't connect to God on that intellectual level. So this guy named Rebbe Shemto created Hasidus so that people could just pray and sing to God, even if they couldn't study. So those are the actual differences between the two. In terms of practice, it's almost the same thing. Uh, um, a Hasidic woman might not be allowed to drive a car, right? I was allowed to drive a car, but I wasn't allowed to ride a bicycle and dance or dance in front of men or sing. So the concept of a woman is responsible for men's thoughts exists in both worlds. The concept of separating yourself from the outside world exists in both worlds. The concept of not educating women because their only purpose in life is to be subservient to their husbands in both worlds. Now, the difference between modern orthodoxy and Hasidus and my world, that's vast. Modern orthodox women will go to college. They'll have televisions in their houses. They'll live very normal American lives, you know, current world lives, but they'll keep kosher and Passover and stuff, but nothing that separates them from the outside world. So modern orthodoxy is very different than extremist orthodoxy that I grew up in. And within that extremist fold, there's a thousand gradations and it's all dependent on how close you are to the outside world. So the further removed you are, the more holy and spiritual and righteous you are. The closer you are, like, do you secretly watch Netflix? You're a naughty, naughty Jew. So it's really dependent on what's your level of connectivity to the outside world. And my parents' level of connectivity to the outside world was nil, zero, none. none. Did your dad have the hat or the, the black hat or the fur? The black hat, the felt black hat. We were yeshiva, not Hasidish. All right. So I want to go to Atlanta. You, you're the, I grew up, uh, I grew up in New York, but I spent 25 years in Atlanta in Buckhead. Um, and is that where you lived in Buckhead? No, no, in Toco Hills. That's the, Oh, Toco Hills, all Jewish. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So your then husband, Yosef, gets a job in Atlanta and you find yourself in Atlanta and sort of becoming a leader in the local Orthodox community. Um, but for this go around, you're mixing with the two worlds, you know, the, the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world. And that had an effect on you. Can you tell me a little bit about that portion of your story? So, you know, you say it exactly correct. When you go what's called out of town, anywhere outside of New York is out of town, by definition, <laughs> in my world. <laughs> so yeah. you're in town and you're a New Yorker, everybody else in the world is out of town. There's yep. only one town. Yep. So, but the difference is that in a place like Muncie, it's so big that you never have to go outside of its environs for anything. Doctors, we have them. Policemen, we've got them. You name it, surgeons, OBGY, I mean, everything is there. So you literally never have to leave the neighborhood if you don't want to. Yep. In a place like Atlanta, it's just a much smaller community. It's yep. not small, it's not big enough that everything is within the community. So you do have to interact with the outside world slightly more. And it's what I call a proselytizing. A community, meaning they're not going out to non-Jews and trying to convert them. Jews do not convert other people. They're going to Jews who are not religious and trying to bring them back into religion. Ah. And so that's the flavor of that community. And so every Shabbos, you know, when I would make Friday night, Saturday, uh, I would have 30, you know, college students learning about their Judaism. It was a place where, you know, they came to bring Jews back to the fold. That was the purpose of that community. Okay, got it. But there was a moment in Atlanta that you decided, that's it, I'm out of here. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving this, I'm leaving my husband's, I'm moving to New York, um, and I'm starting a new life. Could you describe for us what that felt like for you? Because I have to imagine that with doing this so young from Austin, you know, to Muncie to now Atlanta, like it took some pretty big balls for you to be able to say like, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this anymore. Take me back to that moment where you're like, I'm leaving. That's it. I would say there's two really important moments in my exodus, my own personal exodus. The first one, as you said, is that decision that I want to leave. And the last one was actually walking out the door. And between the two of those is almost 10 years. Ah, uh, okay. So it wasn't quick. Not at all. Meaning when I lived in Atlanta, I realized, and, and what happened was basically, I have a daughter, Miriam, right? And she was born in Atlanta. And when she was really young, four years old, five years old, she started giving voice to all the questions I had had in my mind mm. my whole life. Mm. except I never spoke them out loud because that world had convinced me that even thinking this way was bad, mm. that by not being okay with having to be obedient and subservient, I'm flawed. Mm -hmm. And I believed it. I genuinely believed that something was wrong with me, that I couldn't disappear myself enough. And then comes along this little child who no one could convince me of was that she was bad. She was four years old and she certainly hadn't heard these things from me. And here she is and she's asking all the questions. I can't wear pants to play soccer 
because a guy might see my knees and get turned on. If I'm responsible for his sins, is he responsible for mine? And I was like, yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. And so hearing my questions coming out of the mouth of a innocent child gave me permission for the first time in my life to say, it's not me, it's the system. Mm. So once I allowed myself that permission to say, it's not that I'm flawed, that I can't be submissive and subservient. It's the system that forces me to do so that's flawed. And so she started me on that journey. And, you know, I spent almost 10 years educating myself, you know, reading everything that I could get my hands on, watching television. You know, I keep on, I always tell people, it's like, imagine if you decide you want to dive 60 meters, right? So I think there's like 200 people in the world who could dive that deep. It's very difficult. It's like a different plant. If you read a hundred books about diving that low, and if you then watched 800 movies about people diving that deep, does that mean you can walk outside and jump on in and dive? No, you are on the outside looking in. You haven't actually done a dive. And that's what it's like. I learned about the outside world, like you can learn about diving, but completely, you know, in a disjointed from reality, doesn't mean I knew how to live a modern life. And then the last step, the actually walking out the door, that also happened because of Miriam. Because even though I planned my escape and I saved for my escape and I educated myself for my escape, I didn't have the guts to actually escape. <laughs> I got scared. And, you know, it's, it's like time travel. You're walking into a world that you're not familiar with, that is so different than your own, that's 200 years in the future. You don't know a single human being, not a soul, nobody. Nobody knows you. You have no anchor, no anything. And so that change is almost impossible. It's really torturous. And so my original plan, by the time I got to that point of misery, was to kill myself. That seemed an easier route, was just to die. That was the easiest way to escape the world I lived in. And the only reason I didn't choose that route, I I started starving myself. I was down to 73 pounds when I left my community. Mm. Um, and I probably would have died if it hadn't been for the fact that Miriam came home literally the night before I left and was crying hysterically because a teacher had accused her of cheating because her answers were too good. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was the last drop. I realized that if I kill myself, I stop my pain. They're going to do to Miriam what they did to me. And at my age, she's going to be in the same place, miserable, unhappy, not knowing how her life turned out this way. Look at her. She's in Stanford University. She's the youngest person in the history of Stanford to give a class. She gave an augmented reality class when she was a freshman. She's bisexual and has a girlfriend. None of that would have been possible had I stayed. She would have been married off as a teenager. She certainly wouldn't go to Stanford. She certainly wouldn't be dating women. So I realized that if I died, that doesn't solve her problem. And so she is the impetus for me to walk out the door. She's the beginning of my Exodus story and the end of my Exodus story. Wow. 
Wow, what a story. You know, when you were in New York after you made that decision, um, you were now free to follow your heart's desire and to do what you want. And you stepped into fashion. How would you describe what that freedom felt like for you to be able to create? You you had a, a great quote. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was something like where um, they were giving you trouble for wearing colors. And you're like, well, as soon as, as soon as God decides to change the colors of things like fruits, then uh, I'm going to, if you can have an, a bright orange, then I can have a bright orange shirt, something like that. And which I thought was such a great answer. Um, but the, I guess the question like is, <laughs> right, right. How would you describe what that, you know, the thing we all take for granted, which is like our ability to just do whatever the hell we want to do. Now you're into fashion and you're able to do it. What does that feel like for you? Well, it's interesting because it's like extreme euphoria, massive fear, and uh, I guess depression all together because you feel extreme euphoria because, you know, I don't take anything for granted. I'm a collector of firsts. You know, when you're young, you have firsts coming at you in such rapidity that you don't actually stop and 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 recognize that it's a first. You know, what is it? Mm. Youth is wasted on the young, right? You don't realize all the firsts you're experiencing. But if you start experiencing those firsts at 42, at 43, you remember them. I remember my first kiss with someone that I chose. I remember the first shoe that I drew with the purpose of selling it. I remember all of those things, the ability, the fact that I was allowed to work, to create, was the greatest gift imaginable. I mean, I was genuinely euphoric. I, of all the things in this world that I love to do is work. I love to work. I'm a crazy workaholic. And so to be able to do that was the greatest gift. Then there's a lot of depression because you've walked out of a very close-knit community where everybody knows you, where you matter, where you have a family and you have friends. And they all, other than three people, they all dropped me. All of that. I lost my parents, my siblings, my friends, all in one fell swoop. So on one hand, it's euphoria for getting to work for the first time in my life. On the other hand, I severe depression because I was so alone. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I was being taken advantage of. You've read the book by a thousand people, you know? And so it was a mix of, and complete sheer panic because I had no idea what I was doing. I was literally on Mars trying to figure out how Martians live. That's what it felt like. And so it was a very weird emotional mix of extreme high, extreme low, and total panic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because these first make sense to me. We've been in Italy now for nine months and, you know, there's that, that first time of, you know, tasting the gelato and the first time yeah. walking on the cobblestone streets. And the first time I remember yeah. the first time I'm sitting here and I hear the church bells ringing as I'm walking down the street. And now I've heard yeah. them eight times a day for nine months. You know what I mean? And so you get, you get used to it. In uh, 2016, you founded a shoe company. Um, And if I did my research- I founded it in 2013, a month after I left my community. Oh, wow. So you went right for it. I went right for it. I mean, I left end of November. Julia Hart LLC was founded in January. 
Was your husband at the time, let's just take a quick step back in Atlanta. Over that 10-year period, did he know that you were slipping away? And did you know that you were going to go to eventually New York fashion and start shoe, start a shoe company so quickly? Neither of us knew anything, honestly. Like he definitely didn't see it coming. No one saw it coming. Don't forget, I taught Judaics. Right. I was a person that, you know, in that world as a woman, I was extremely educated compared to everybody else. Um, and so, you know, no one, it didn't occur to anyone that I would walk out the door. For sure, not my he thought I would say for the first four years, he would sure that I would regain my senses and come home. A hundred percent convinced. So he certainly didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming because if you had told me that I would walk out the door of my world, start a shoe brand that within nine months would be sold in 11 countries. And then within two years would be sold in 127 points of sale. I would have laughed at you. I would have said, are you crazy? That's impossible. They just, it, it was too big of a dream. I couldn't even envision such a thing. And when I started my shoe brand, I was just hoping to sell five pairs of shoes. I didn't care. I didn't know. I just, I wanted at least five women to buy my shoes. That was my big goal, you know? And so I don't think either of us had any inkling of what the next nine years would look like. That's for sure. You know, my first thought, when I think about somebody that is dressing modestly, not really happy about where she is, my first thought is, what does she know about shoes? But then my second part is she knows everything about shoes because she hates the way she has to dress and she wants to wear something that excites her. So she actually knows more about it because she's more passionate about it. Is that right? It's a great, I mean, that's actually a really impressive observation. I think I valued it more because I wasn't allowed to. And I think that because I wasn't taught in the traditional fashion way, I didn't come in with preconceived notions of what, what, what is and how it's done. I hate those words. Well, this is how it's done. I have heard that my whole life. Don't care. You're going to tell me you're an expert. Congratulations. Have a nice life. I don't believe in any of that. What I look at is what should be, what could be, not what is. And so for me, I think I chose shoes as opposed to anything else in fashion for two reasons, really. Number one, I'm five feet and half an inch, half an inch, let's not forget my half an inch. When you're five feet tall, every half an inch counts. So yep. I'm five feet, half an inch. I literally try to convince them to put that on my license. I'm like, can you put five feet and half an inch on my license? They're like, damn, we don't do half inches. We don't do half inches. Five one. And uh -huh. I was like, no, because that would be a lie. I don't know why I'm five feet and half an inch. Uh-huh, uh-huh, 5.5. <laughs> 5.5. So, um, so number one, I'm vertically challenged. I'm a tiny human. So in my community, even though I had to say, cover myself modestly, I always wore high heels. No one. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Because I would say, show me where in the tower it says I can't wear high heels. You show it to me, I won't wear them anymore. But until you can find a law, not a concept, not a, oh, this is something we've taken upon ourselves. A law, finally a law that says I can't wear high heeled shoes, I won't wear them. And of course, there is no such thing. And so my shoes were always sky high, even in that world. 
But the problem that I faced is that I wore sky high heels all the time and I wanted to kill myself because my feet hurt so badly. So when I started the shoe brand, as you know, by its second iteration of designing shoes, I was thinking about how to redesign a high heel so that you could eradicate pain from wearing high heels. And that's what we ended up doing. We created this thing called Cloud9 Technology. We changed the arch of the shoe by two millimeters, thereby alleviating the pressure all being at the front of your foot and spreading it out across your entire foot, which makes wearing high heels a lot more comfortable. And so I think I chose it, number one, because I needed them. I'm also a size four. So finding shoes is, excuse my language, is fucking impossible. I for bet, someone yeah. And last but not least, it's the most challenging and difficult thing of fashion. And I'm one of those crazy people. The harder it is, the happier I am. And so as opposed to clothing, shoes are also engineered. There's structural things that you need to know. A shoe has to be wearable. It has to support your body as you walk down the street, right? So there is that the scientific engineering side as much as there is the design side. And that that was interesting to me that you could do the science and the technology side and the fashion and beauty side and kind of meld it together. And that's what I've done in the, my entire career is whatever, you know, fashion part of the industry I'm in, I go in, disrupt everything and show people what can be, not what is. Do you still have the shoe company or is that gone? When I became creative director of Aperla, it was such a full-time job. And running a startup is such a full-time job. I chose to close my company to be creative director. And I sold um, the rights to use my patents for life to some companies. And so got it. Uh, my investors and in Julia Hart made like 15% return on their money within two years. Wow. So it was a pretty good investment for them because I took all the money that I used took all the money that I had gotten for selling these um, patents, patents pending. And instead of keeping it, I gave it to all my investors um, because I didn't want them to be unhappy that I was closing the company. And so I took all that money, gave it straight directly to them. And they're still my close friends till this day. Oh, that's really cool. Um, Did I do my research correctly and see that somehow NASA was involved in this or am I, am I way off? The gel, the, the, the gel that I used. So basically I know, I mean, I'm going to assume you don't wear high heels, although no, I, I don't Sa- Saturday sometimes, but that's only if I'm having a moment. <laughs> um, so, you know, again, high heel shoes are really torturously painful and you can't like, you know, if you're a guy and you have a shoe or a sneaker, you can go to a pharmacy, buy a gel insole, put it inside your shoe. Now you're walking on this delectable cushion. Women can't do that because the mold that makes the high, that the high heel is made out of isn't thick enough for her foot and the gel. Okay. It's not wide enough. And so your feet are touching the ground and there's no cushion. So again, I changed the molds and the lasts and deepened it and embedded an anti-shock cooling gel into the shoe. So you didn't have to go out and buy one. It was there and walking on it felt like 
heaven. And this material was also used by NASA because as is an insulation because it's anti-shock and it's cooling. That's let me ask you, let me ask you a guy question. Why do women want to wear high heels like that? Well, I can just tell you for myself, I can't speak for all women. For me, first and foremost, I can't reach anything. Do you know what it's like? <laughs> it's just practicality. Going into a supermarket, going to a bookstore, I can't reach a thing. I'm five feet half an inch tall. Yep. So first and foremost, it's just practical. Okay. I'm four inches taller or five inches taller than I wear. I can reach things, right? Yep. And then I think the other thing for me, again, this is only for me. I cannot speak for all women. For me, I'm so tiny that when I'm not wearing heels, and again, it's nice to look younger and it's great that people don't think I'm 51, but I feel like a literally like a 17 year old, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm a size of a sixth grader. So there's that confidence boost that wearing high heels gives me, but I don't want to suffer. My shoes are the most, I wear my shoes 12 hours a day and my feet do not hurt at the end of the day. And that's what it was about. Melding beauty and sensuality and femininity with comfort. Got it. No more suffering for beauty. It's an outrageous concept. All right. You mentioned La Perla. Is, are there two La Perla companies? Is one more lingerie and one something else? Or is there only one La Perla? There's only one La Perla. And, um, it was originally a lingerie company. And then when um, Silvio Scalia bought it, he wanted to transform it into a full fashion brand. So I was the fifth creative director hired in five years. But that was his concept, was to transform La Perla into a full fashion brand. Okay, I wanna jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Was there a doctor something or other involved in La Perla? No, but there was a doctor who invested in Julia Hart, a dentist from Muncie. Okay, all right. We'll leave the dentist alone for a minute because I have so many questions. Let's... (laughs) Let's pick up with uh, your television show, My Unorthodox Life. What was the best part? What was the worst part? You ask really good questions. You know, there's a, a Jewish expression, which means a good question is half an answer. Mm. Oh, I love that. Right? But I mean, you so need to good. know what to ask. So, yeah. Shayla Tova Chatsichuba. A good question is half an answer. So love your questions. Anyway, um, the great part of filming my unorthodox life is, you know, the purpose and goal of it was to tell people it's never too late. You can be 42 and ignorant and not have an education and make something of yourself. So to see people's reaction to that, you know, I have I've had two women and Maybe two women doesn't sound like a lot, but to me, it's two women who wrote me and told me that they chose not to commit suicide because of watching my show. Um, There are two lives in this world because of that show. 
And of course, there's the tens upon tens of thousands of women who have written me from all over the world who tell me that they left their husband after watching my show, started their business, walked out of their community, did whatever was making them unhappy, went for it. And so that made me feel really good. Um, The hard part, my goodness, people are mean. It's (laughs) unbelievable, isn't it? It's unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, and they want to think the worst of you. They want to find a reason to say, oh, she didn't really do it herself or, oh, she just got lucky or, oh, she's just intelligent. Because then it excuses them from having to do something. And I got attacked like no tomorrow when the TV show came out. And because as opposed to the book, you read the book, there's so much detail. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying is true. And if you're not even sure, there's a website called brazenbook.com. And if you go there and you click a link, which I very strongly suggest everyone to do, that says sources, I back up every single word I say. So now, really difficult to call me a liar. Yep. Although, hey, people are still calling me a liar. Sure. But it's all, but at least now that community can't say I'm a liar or that I didn't live the life I lived or that there was something normal about my existence. There wasn't. So, but when the show came out, because the show doesn't have so much detail and there isn't a place to give sources, you know, people called me a liar and they tried to silence me. And it felt so triggering because I left a world where I was silenced and to come into this world and to for people to still try and silence me was extremely, extremely painful. And to be told that what happened to you didn't happen to you. And again, I can say this because, as you know, in the book, I was date raped. It feels like being raped all over again yeah. because it's not bad enough. You had to live through it. Now they're denying your pain. It's awful. It's terrible, terrible feeling. And so, you know, celebrity, I think in 2022 sucks, you know, it's not fun because you can be so cruel and it's all anonymous. When you, know you, say when you walk down the street in, was there a point after the show, as the show became more popular, was there a point where you were walking down the street and you started to get recognized by people? It happens every day. It happens every day. What does that feel like for you? Because you didn't, you know, prior to the show, you didn't have that, right? What does that feel like for you now? Well, I'll tell you, it's funny because on one hand, it's really awkward, embarrassing, you know, yeah. you feel so funny. Um, but on the other hand, I would say 99% of people who come over to me tell me their story. Mm. They don't come over to me and say, oh my God, I'm fangirling. They come over and say, hey, I started my own company. Or, hey, um, I left my abusive husband. One woman literally pulled the back of her shirt down and showed me cigarette butt burns. Oh my God. Yeah. So when women like that come over to me and tell me their story, um, and how the show changed their life, that makes it all worth it. There's nothing I like more than knowing that it did help people, you know? So when people come over to me and tell me things like that, it makes me tremendously happy. When people come over to me and are like, oh my God, can I see a photo with you? It's embarrassing, you know? So it really depends on why they're coming over to me. They're coming over to me to tell me something they've done in their life. I want to hear about, it. you know? I think it's the coolest thing. 
Yeah, it's great. You know, it's interesting. I just interviewed, um, do you remember uh, Amanda Knox? Yes, of course. Just interviewed her and I that asked was, her, it was, a, it was real, well, it was interesting because I'm here in Italy and when I look out my window, I see all these college kids here and she was a college kid, you know, yeah. she was here and yeah. then, then, then the thing happens. But mm-hmm. I asked her, you know, like, what is it like when you pull your credit card out and, you know, the waiter is looking, cause she's not, you know, she's older now, but like when somebody looks and sees the name, like, what is that yeah. like? And she kind of had an answer like you, you know, she said, most people, um, she said it kind of falls in two camps. Like, you know, one camp is, are you that Amanda Knox? And then, you know, then the other one is, oh my God, you know, I think you got a bum rap and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I want to ask you a few questions um, as we move towards the end of the hour here. Um, was there, we'll move, we'll jump out of the television show and move back into orthodoxy. Was there, I know you can't pick and choose elements of um, Orthodox Judaism, but if you had to choose maybe one or two parts of being an Orthodox Jew that you find valuable, if you do, what would they be? Oh, it's a lot more than one or two points. I mean, honestly, most of the way that I lived my life was beautiful. It's certain archaic laws that destroy the beauty of everything else. This whole concept of a woman being responsible for a man's sins. That's the biggest one. And the other concept of the fact that a woman doesn't have the intellect to learn Gemara and they're not allowed to do so. To me, those are the those laws that fall within those two categories. They're the ones that make everything else terrible. But there's thousands of things I've learned from my world. Charity, that's a real big one where I come from. Community, thinking for about someone outside of yourself, acts of what's called chesed, which is acts of charity. Um, You know, when my brother died, the whole community came, the CEO swept the floor. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. Uh, There's a lot of focus on personal responsibility as opposed to personal rights, which I think is really nice because it isn't give me, give me, it's what can I give you? And I think that's a very beautiful concept. Gratitude is a big one. I think... In our world here, I see very little gratitude. People don't know how to be grateful. They just take things for granted. And in my world, I was taught to take nothing for granted. So there's a lot that's so beautiful about the world that I come from. It's not the people that I have an issue with and not the concepts of Judaism that I have an issue with because I think they're magnificent. It's the extremism. And those laws that I have an issue with exist in every extremist culture. Just like I cover myself... An Islamic woman who lives in a fundamentalist version of Islam has to do the same. Same for a Mormon woman. Same for a you know, fundamentalist Christian woman. It's all the same laws. And so that's why I know it has nothing to do with Judaism, because it exists in every fundamentalist culture. Do you consider yourself, what do you consider yourself now religiously? I am spiritual, not religious, meaning I believe in God. I talk to God every day. You know, I feel that God has had his hand on my shoulder through this entire journey. So, I mean, there's just mirror. You've read the book. It's like literally miracle after miracle. I walk into a fashion party. I meet the head buyer of Harrods, you know, that's God. If you ask me, I mean, I couldn't have planned that one out. Right. So I believe in God. I have so much gratitude and faith in him. 
I don't believe that he cares whether my collarbone is uncovered. I don't think that he cares whether I'm a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. I think God is bigger than those differences and that he cares about all humanity equally. And, you know, and it, it is not about, you know, how long your skirt is. It's just not. All right. I'm going to ask you a few questions as we move towards wrapping that are going to feel like, why is he asking me these questions? These are really good, but just wait. <laughs> Go, I'll go for it. All right, it's we'll been start. so much fun. I'm going with it. Go for <laughs> okay, it. Okay, cool. What do people often get wrong about you? Everything. <laughs> Literally everything. Is there <laughs> one in particular? Um, you know, okay, so if you know, it, people tend to assume that uh how do I say this in a polite way? Um you know, people make certain assumptions about celebrities, basically, mm -hmm. that you're fame hungry, you're power hungry, uh, you're doing it to, you know, be worshipped or whatever. It's really painful to hear those things because it's so difficult putting yourself out there like this. It's so crazy to share what I've shared with the world, knowing I'm going to be judged, knowing I'm going to be attacked. So, you know, I didn't do this for the thing. That's the hard part. The hard part is all of that attention. Yes. But if you look at it, you're getting so many amazing rewards by being fearless the way that you are. Thank you. Well, that's what I, I keep reminding myself. Yes, it's hard now. Yes, it's painful. People are going to always think the worst of you just because you're a celeb. Um, it hurts. I mean, it's really awful, especially when you know inside your heart why you're doing something and that your intentions are pure and it's hard for you and it's difficult to put yourself out there. And then people look at you and say, oh, she's just doing it. What crazy person in their right mind would Nobody. do this to themselves? Nobody. Nobody. It's awful. Yeah. Nobody. It's like, why would I, why would I do this? Yeah. Why would you do it? If you don't want to change something, the problem is when I see that the talent is the media. They have the audience. I realize that if I want to change the world, I've got to make a lot of noise. I've got to have as many people listening to me as humanly possible. That's how we change things. And I do think that a story can change the world. But has it been easy? No. Has it been fun? No, it has not. <laughs> bet. I bet. What is an unusual or absurd thing that you love. Somebody would look and go, well, that's really weird, but you love it. Hmm, my goodness, you asked a question. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, what's something that people think is great? Okay, does it have to be a food or can it be something? Anything. Okay, so I have this very annoying habit. It drives my kids crazy. Once I have a song that I like, I listen to it nonstop, same song on repeat until I get sick of it. And then it's the next song. So being in a car with me, you're going to hear the same song every day for like four weeks. It makes people crazy. But like on a loop? On a loop, literally on a loop, same song, literally day after day after day is all I want to hear. And then I go to my next song and it's day after day after day after day until I, you know, it drives my kids insane. They hate it. It makes that them crazy. 
absolutely is the answer I wanted. Perfect. Um, are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it can even be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind substantially about where you're like, you know, I used to think this way, but now I think this way. Everything. 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 Because don't forget, I was taught that you're a bad person. Because I'm, I'm a non-Jew. You're a non-Jew. You're, I was taught that you are dangerous and that if given the opportunity, you're going to stick me in an oven and use my skin for a lampshade. Oh my God. I thought everyone in the outside world was out to get me and that they were, they were wolves hiding in sheep's clothing and they would smile at me and then stick a knife in my back when it was convenient. That's how I was taught. You know, so race, diversity, ethnicity, like we don't, hear about those things in my world. That's not a thing because any differentiation is dangerous, right? If you have a beautiful voice and you sing louder than other girls, even with your only amongst girls, you're going to get in trouble. So of course there's no gay anything in my world. There's, you know, there's no transgender. There's, there's, there's no multi-ethnicities. It's all homogeneous. And so and you're taught that that is all dangerous and they're all bad. Yeah. Right. So everything I thought about the world changed everything. And, and then silly things like, well, it's not silly. Let me take that back. Things that you would think I should have known that I did not Like I thought my whole life, because that's what I was taught that the Jews were the only people against whom genocide had been perpetrated. And I was taught that that's a proof of God's love of us, that we're the only ones that have, you know, been almost annihilated because God loves us so much when we mess up, he punishes us. That's the concept. And then I find out that's not true. The Turks did the same thing to the Armenians. It happened in Serbia. It happened in Africa. There's been many different groups of people who have, people have tried to exterminate. We're not the only ones. And that shocked me. I mean, because it was such a core belief. And then you start learning and you realize, it's just not true. It's not true. With every new devil, um, with every uh, new level comes a new devil. What are mm. you currently struggling with? Well, I'm going through a really nasty divorce. I'm sure you've seen it or read about it or heard about it. I have. Um, it's the, yeah. le the least of which I'm interested in you. But, but now that's, that you brought it up. That's something that's really difficult because the reality is, I worked 20 hour days for three years. I never made a salary. And the one thing that I'm not adept at or, you know, great with, or that's not my area of expertise. We had a CFO, a wonderful CFO. We had the guy who's now the CEO. He was compliance and audit and all of that. And then we had my husband who was the greatest, you know, uh, classifier, reclassifier, you know, they did that. They created the structure that is now being weaponized against me. You know, I was told, no, Julia, don't take a salary. Let's make it a management fee, 2% of revenues um, that will go into our holding company. That way, my husband could share my salary. So meaning instead of it being just mine, it would go into a shared account, which means he could have my salary as well. And so because I didn't want to take the full amount, I'm still owed $7.3 million. Because I didn't want to take out the full amount, what would happen is 
whatever personal expenses I would expect would spend on the company would get subtracted from the amount owed me in the management fee. That was a system they created. That's the system I used. I've never spoken to an auditor. I would be the world's worst embezzler to put everyone else in charge of the auditors and not do anything if I had something to hide. I wouldn't know how to hide something financially if I wanted to. And you'd know me for what, 45 minutes, but you've read my book. I am the most open human being in the world. I don't hide anything. People saw season one, they saw my closet. I've never hidden my clothing. It's part of my persona. It's part of what I do and who I am. And for to be accused of things which are made, which he knows are obviously a lie. He set up the system. He knows I never you know, misappropriated anything. But you set up that system and then you weaponize it because it's good press, right? Julia Hart spends $150,000. Ooh, la, 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 la. Yeah, Julia Hart brought the company from a valuation at $90 million in 2018 where they couldn't even sell it for 70 because they tried to in 2021 being valued at between 700 and 1.1 billion in two and a half years through COVID. So if you want to take all that value, how do you do it? You throw the person who made it under the bus so that when you steal from her, people aren't going to wonder why. They're going to say, oh, well, yeah, I guess she brought all this value. And yes, she made it a billion dollar business, but she stole from the company. So it's okay that he does this. So it's the excuse he needs to try and get me out so that he can have all the value that I've created. So that's literally torturously painful. And just to hear these accusations thrown at you when you know you've never done anything wrong, when all you did was work 20 hour days and succeeded. And to have all of that being denigrated because someone wants it all. That that's painful. How do you work work. through that? I'll let you know when I work through it. I am not working through it, baby. Let me tell you. I am far from working through it. That's great. I don't get it. You know, the Bentley, I'll just give you one example. The Bentley, right? Yeah. I literally purchased that with my own car. I had a premarital Range Rover SV autobiography, custom design, red leather outside, matte silver, sorry, matte silver on the outside, red leather inside. It was the only car of its kind in America, my car. I traded that in for this Bentley that I'm supposed to have stolen. I mean, it's it's just silly. It's It's literal tote smoke and mirrors, but it's very painful to watch someone destroy your reputation when you've done literally nothing wrong and people love it you know and and we've sent so much proof to page six that every word is a lie they don't use it because it's yeah. not the good story yeah it's not it's selling it's not selling it's not anything. A good story you know and it's easier to say oh she didn't do great things than it is to acknowledge that i did and i think there's also this worship of the billionaire and there is this assumption that Silvio is a billionaire, which is as far from the truth as me being a six foot tall, I don't know, tennis player, just factually inaccurate. But because people think that it's like fake news and, and fake billionaires, he has gravitas. And for someone like me who literally worked 20 hour days, it's very painful. Well, if there's any five foot tall 
woman that I know who's going to eat this thing for lunch, it's you. Um, so I am, I am so grateful that you said yes to the interview. Um, and I think we covered a lot of areas that are going to help a lot of people. So we'll, we'll end with this. Um, let's change things up a little bit. Uh, as a last question, what one question would you like to ask me? Well, first of all, I just want to thank you before I ask you a question. Um, this has been the most unusual interview I've ever had. You've asked questions no one else has. I really loved your questions. Thank you for saying that. So I guess my question to you would be, how do you do that? How do you come up with you know, such thought-provoking questions that really engender, you know, so, I mean, you've made me realize things that I hadn't thought of. How do you thank do you. that? Um, I collect questions as a hobby in the same way that you loop songs. I, whenever I hear a question, I write it down because if I say to you, tell me what it was like growing up, your brain goes, where? Like which part of my life, what age, what do you, so the search function is so wide that the specificity of a question to your point, uh, the, I don't I, I scribbled it, but I can't see, read my writing, um, where, you know, the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the question is half answered. What was that statement? A good question is half an answer. Good question. If you take the time, number one, you have to do your research. So you have to know what question to ask. I am very impressed. Thank you. That's, that's one. You got to do your research. Two is I have to put myself in your shoes and say, it's funny, literally, and say something like, okay, so she is not wearing, she's not really showing, she, I didn't know that you were actually wearing it, but she's not really, you know, wearing fashion or she's not really walking around in high heels to show it off. How would she know anything about that? But then you think about it and you go, well, who better? to know what it would, so you have to, like, I have to put myself in your, I mean, and, very think, and think about these things. So, um, so th yes, thank you. you. You'd be a good podcast host yourself, but I'm sure you have enough on your plate right now. Well, well listen, I think you're an amazing podcast host. So thank you. I really had a great time. This was incredibly interesting. I, I've come, I'm coming out of this learning something new about myself. I love that. Um, okay, so uh, any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? Please read my book and write your own story. Love that. Julia, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful day. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. <laughs>